Okay, Erev Tov everyone on this, uh, going into the second night of Hanukkah, Parshas Miketz, and there's always a mitzvah to find the connection between Parshas Miketz and Hanukkah, and this week is no different, so let's begin with the first source, the Rambam, we have more English than Hebrew this week, what's that? Oh, well, you read the title. Yeah, you read the title. Well, I gotta wait till the end. Because it's messy. Okay, the Rambam, the Rambam laws of Hanukkah says, the mitzvah of kindling Hanukkah lamps is very dear. That's the only mitzvah in the entire Torah the Rambam calls it a very precious mitzvah. A person should be careful, very careful in its observance to publicize the miracle and thus increase our praise of God and our expressions of thanks for the miracles which he did on our behalf. Even if a person has no resources for food except what he receives from charity, he should pawn or sell his garments and purchase oil and lamps to kindle them in fulfillment of the mitzvah. So now we have to know what is so special that we need to publicize this mitzvah so much more so than any other mitzvah. Okay, let us continue. What are the two basic mitzvahs of Hanukkah in source 2? The Ram says on each and every one of these nights, the entire halal is recited. Okay, so we're lighting the candles and saying the halal. And why these two specific mitzvahs for Hanukkah more than any other holiday that, that represents miracles as well. Now, here's a fascinating halach in the Shulchan Aruch. Let's say someone has not lit and will not be lighting that night. He's homeless and has no one lighting for him. Okay, now, what if he is looking and he sees in the window someone is lighting a menorah? That's good. So he can make the blessing. And on the first night, he can say Shehechianu. He didn't light it, didn't do anything, wasn't part of the house, wasn't anything. Which is most, and this is unique, we don't find this in any other place that we make a bracha when seeing someone else doing their mitzvah. No, the first one and Shechianu on the first night. He can't say He certainly didn't light it, but he can say I'm Yes. Every day. Starting today. So if you miss today, you can do tomorrow. Eight days. Full hollow. Okay, that's one set of questions. Now we go to another thing. I'm going to load you up with questions, front end. Pirkei says there are three crowns. Keser Torah, Keser Kohuna, Keser Malchus. The crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. And this is together with a uh, Medrash Rabbah, where again it's the same Reb Shimon Bar Yochai. He mentions the same statement in source number five. But he tells you which... Uh, uh, tool in the Mishkan is used to represent this. So he says, oh, well, one second. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not read source four properly. Oh, please. Sorry. 
I'm too excited to just move ahead here. I gotta calm down. Again, Rav Shimon says there are three crowns, right? Crown of Torah, crown of priesthood, kind of kingdom. The Kesser Shem Tov and the crown of a good name, Olal Gabeah, is higher than all of them. How many crowns did he say there are? Three. Three. How many did he mention? Four. That's a question, isn't it? Okay, let's get, now we go back to the measure. So now the same Reb Shimon Bar Yochai says that they all connect to certain utensils. The, the crown of kingship, that's the table in the Beis Amigdash where the bread was put. And it mentions, there was a Zer Zahav Saviv. The table had an ornamental crown around the side. The crown of king of priesthood, Zemizbech, that's the altar. Because it also had a little crown <laughs> around it, the inner altar. The Kesser Torah, that's the ark. And it also had a little crown around it. See, you have three crowns. That's one metrish. Now we go to source six, and we talk about Another thing, a seir izim echad lechatos, one goat that's for a chatos. It says keneged shem tov. That parallels the good name, which is action. And the medrash goes on that it's not the studying is the main thing, but the action, because actions forgive for people. And then he continues at the underlying part for oser keser, and that crown of the good name. Keneged HaMenorah. That parallels the menorah. The four items were in the Beis HaMikdash. Now, here's the first question. What is exactly a good name? Is it the way that others perceive him? Or should it maybe be an objective reality? What justifies a good name? You know, what would you say a person would have to have to have a good name? It's just perception. Mido? Okay, Mido's? It suggests other people look at you because it's uh, reputation. No, it's it's okay. That's what it suggests. Okay, yeah. okay. Objective. Okay. Sure. And obviously, we see that this relates to the menorah. Which is, we say there's four crowns. There's the crown of the shame tov, right? So the menorah is a shame tov. Okay, now that's a little interesting. How do we see shame tov? The other three are very easy to see the connection. The crown. You know, and does the menorah have a crown? No. It doesn't have a crown. So how could it be a crown? Remember, it's lit, and for the outside to see, everyone sees Okay, okay, but, but where's the crown? There's no crown there. How about the person lighting it? No, we're talking about the objects. Oh, the, the four no objects, the other three had crowns. There's no crown. So, so there's no crown, but it's still the Mishnah says, and the Bedrash says, it's the, it is a Kesser. It's the Kesser of Shem Tov, which is, you know, it's kind of, um, uh, what's the word, uh, subjective. I mean, the, the crown of kingship is very clear, the crown, crown of priesthood. The crown of Torah, these are very clear things. Crown of a good name is a little bit, you know, ambiguous. So what, what does that exactly mean? And obviously, there's got to be a Hanukkah connection here. If a good name is the menorah, and therefore, and the menorah is the highlight of Hanukkah, so there's got to be something to connect 
having a good name in Hanukkah. That we see, we have to see what this is. Okay. Now, let us see in Megillus Antiochus. Now, that's not the same thing as Megillus Esther. Megillus Esther was written in with prophecy. Megillus Antiochus is an English word that's called the Apocrypha, I think, which means somebody wrote it, but it's not with Nevoah, but it's accurate. And it tells us the three mitzvahs that the Greeks did not allow us to do. Specifically, Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and circumcision. So we got to know why are those three specifically. And we see that many Jews were most nefesh for these mitzvahs during this time when the Greeks were ruling over us. And we have to understand, you know, why, why were they doing this? Okay? And what was the concept of the Kiddush Hashem over here? Which we spoke, I think, uh, on Shabbos, <coughs> we spoke about Kiddush Hashem. But so they let them study Torah? Sure, go study Torah, but study it the way we want you to study it. They didn't abolish studying Torah, they just didn't want you to learn it um, uh, the way we learn Torah. No, they said you could study Torah. Well, a certain Torah they didn't want them to learn. You want to learn Chumash, you can learn Chumash. But uh, certain aspects of Torah they didn't want. But that, that's a little bit off the topic over here. Now, but this topic of Kiddush Hashem, which we did speak about on Shabbos, there's another nuance I want to focus on. Tell me exactly what does, don't look in the paper now, what does Kiddush Hashem mean? Simple, simple translation. Give your life for Hashem. That's not the simple mean. That may be what you do, but that's not what it means. Glorify Hashem. I mean, whatever I act so. Six at a time. I can only hear four at a time. But, but sacrifice for Hashem. Sanctify Hashem's name. Hashem's name. Okay. Like you behave well in what Hashem would want you. Behave well in a way that it shall be happy. So let, let's, so let, let's, good, so let's read the Rambam over here to get a, a clear sense. It says, the entire house of Israel are commanded regarding the sanctification of God's great name, men, women, and children. And the Pasuk says, and I shall be sanctified amidst the, amidst the children of Israel. Also they are against, warned against desecrating his holy name. As opposed to, they shall not desecrate my holy name. Now, what do you, what word is, is being emphasized over here? Name. The name of Hashem. So the question is, what is the concept of sanctifying the name of Hashem as opposed to just sanctifying Hashem? When you give just a just name, sanctifying there's a, Hashem. It's like a relationship. You're identifying okay. somebody. Okay. Instead of calling you the rabbi, you say, Okay, and what does that do? How does that make a difference in terms of you giving up your life? I'm giving up my life. Wasn't him saying, I'm giving up my life for Hashem? I'm giving up my life for Hashem's name. I'm, I'm, what, what's the difference? Towards the, to glorify His name, you're doing something which is... Okay, so, okay, so why don't we just say I'm glorifying Him? 
because it, because there's distance. <coughs> you, if if you just speak about Hashem, there's distance. <coughs> but if you speak about His name, there's a closeness. When you, when you refer to people by their name, that creates, okay, that so generates a closeness. Okay, so the importance and elevation, a respect. Okay, and if we glorify Hashem, we're not glorifying His essence. And if we are glorifying its essence, what essence are we glorifying? In other words, we're, we're all saying a lot of good words, but at the end of the day, what, what's the manifest difference between sanctifying God and sanctifying God? When would I be sanctifying God and when would I be sanctifying His name? Or how could I sanctify God without sanctifying His name? Oh, so that, that's where it gets tricky because how do you separate Hashem from His name? It's like His dagger. It's like His banner what we are under His name. Uh, these are all nice words. I'm not <laughs> telling you they're not nice words. But what's the difference? If I would have just said we have to sanctify God, you would have been very happy with that too. You'll give up your life the same, won't you? <laughs> You'll return a lost object to a, a non-Jew if you want to do a Kiddush Hashem. So what's... What's this name business? We have to get, and you see again in source nine, the Alanisim, same idea. Ulecha Asisa, and for you we made shame Godol, a big name. We go Lahodas Olahalal to praise Lishim Chahagadol to your great name. We're talking a lot about name over here. Just say Hashem. So what, what's going on over here? So that's another topic we have to look into. So far we got like three topics already. We got the mitzvahs of Hanukkah, why it's so unique about them. We got this idea of the shame tov, and that's the, the, the menorah. What does that mean? We got kiddush hashem. Let's move a little bit more. The Medrashab in source 10. When it talks about the beginning of the Torah, it says there was a choshech, there was a darkness over the world. That refers to the future of the Golas of Yavon, the exile of Yavon, Greece. But what did they do? They darkened the eyes of the Jews with their decrees. Okay. Okay, they darkened their eyes. So let's explore the deeper differences between the Greeks and the Jews. And another issue is, we know one of the big things the Greeks were into was the Olympics. And why were the Jews against the Olympics? That's something we need to talk about as well. Okay, and now we'll make a little connection into the Parsha. Okay, so that's Hanukkah Torah. Now let's go into the Parsha. And the dreams of Paro, source 11. It says, And from, behold, and from the Nile River, Olosheva Paros, Yefos Maret. Seven cows that are good looking. Ubrios Basor and fatty flesh. Vatireno Baahu. And they're grazing in the swamp or reed grass, swamp grass, whatever. Okay, that's what Parasar. So let me ask you a question. Where else should they be grazing? Best, that was the best patches. No, I, look, yeah. look, look, why didn't it just say, they, they came up from the Nile River, and when you come from the Nile River, what's right next to where you come up from? The swamp, swamp grass, reed grass. So just say, Vatirena, and they were grazing. What do I have to say, Ba'achu? Where else are they going to graze? You just came out of the river, and you're grazing. Where are you going to be grazing? Five miles down the road? It's right, you come out of the river, you're, you're grazing right there. Why do I got to know it's in the swamp? 
Okay? And what does it mean, Yefos Mare? What does it mean, good looking? What does it mean, good looking? So Rashi, on that word, good looking, in 12, says, Simanu, that's a sign, what Yosef is going to tell you, Lime Sova, to the days of plenty, to seven years. Shabrios Neros Yafasulazu. That the creatures they appear good to each other. Because not one of the cows envies the other, or no, that nobody is envying someone else's prosperity. Whoa. Whoa, what, what's Rashi talking about over here? We're talking about days of plenty. Where's this idea that nobody's envious of people? Like, where's, where's Rashi coming up with this idea? I mean, it's a nice idea, but that's certainly, where's, where's this coming from? You know, you just got seven cows coming up. Just say, seven years of plenty, but Rashi adds quite a bit. He says, where no one envies the other's prosperity. So where did Rashi get this? Well, the answer is, well, it's that question we asked before. What are we saying that they're grazing in the swamp grass? So if you look in Source 13, Uncle Lewis, who tells us the Aramaic translation of some of those words. So when it says, Vatireno ba'ahu in Source 11, they were grazing in the swamp grass, Uncle says in Aramaic, Varayan ba'achva. Ba'ahu is a very unusual word for swamp grass. There's a lot of easier words for swamp grass. Ba'ahu, you see, what word do you see in the word ba'ahu? Ach, a brother. So it says they graze with brotherhood. It, means, what, it, it didn't mean to say they're grazing in the swamp grass. We know they're in the swamp grass. They're grazing with brotherhood. That's pretty strange. What does that mean? The cows are buddies with each other. Okay. Well, they're grazing as brothers, and therefore, it's going to be a sign of the, of the prosperity as people are like brothers. Like what, what is going on over here? So, what Rashi is really telling us is really the simple interpretation of the Pusik. But the problem is very few people bother looking at the simple interpretation of the Pusik. If I'm going to tell you that there's going to be seven good years, what would be the word to use for good years? Sheva Shanim? Tov. Tovot. Tov. Good. That's a good year. Right? Uh, Godol, big years. But look at what the Chumash, look what Yosef says in Source 14. And this is, you know, kind of ignore this because the English translation misguides you. I wonder what Art Scroll says over here. I'm just curious if he says the same thing or he's, again, I'm not criticizing even in trying to criticize Art Scroll because they have to use words that people reading it will be happy with. They're not going. They're going to be very upset if they see the words. Uh, oh, he says the same thing. Okay, sheva hine sheva shani bows. Immediately ahead are seven years. Sava gadol. Sava gadol. Article translates abundance, great abundance through the land of Israel, for Egypt. Great abundance. 
means a lot. Okay? And then, he's, Yosef says two psukim later, but then, it's going to be after the seven good years, seven bad years. Look what he says now. And there'll be no trace of the abundance because of that hunger. Because it's going to be very, very strong. Okay. So, it's interesting. So let's try to unpack some of these questions and let's try to understand that Rashi is telling us something very interesting go back go back to the Rashi in uh, source 11 uh, 12 where when he describes the fat animals he says what does he say that everybody looks well disposed to another for no one envies another person's prosperity that's what he says to explain the animals but then when he that's Rashi and then when Yosef's saying he says it's going to be seven years of abundance now uh, let's think about there is there a correlation between abundance and well, well, really, what does the word sava really mean? Vyachalta visavata. Satisfied. So, what is really the word that should be in source 14, the English and 15, should not be abundance. I put it there, Dafka, for you to show don't believe the English translation. It'll be seven years of great satisfaction. And then when the seven years of hunger comes, we won't remember the satisfaction. Now, is what is used now obviously means you're gonna have a lot of stuff. We assume there's gonna be a lot of abundance. Here's the question. Is there a correlation between abundance and satisfaction or not? No. You said that fast without even having to think. Okay, why do you say that? Because if you don't appreciate what you have, you may have lots of it, but you don't, you're not necessarily satisfied. Okay, but, but could you have? It's the opposite of that. Could, could you have abundance and satisfaction? Well, human nature wants more. Ah, very good. You're as smart as King Solomon. You're as smart as King Solomon. Look at source. Look at source sixteen. King Solomon. He who has a hundred wants two hundred. He who has two hundred wants four hundred. What do we see from this wisdom of King Solomon? There's an inverse relationship between abundance and satisfaction. You don't get the two together. Marban al-Khasim, Marban Daiga, says Mishnah. A lot of wealth, a lot of worry. So what, what, what is Yosef saying? What is he really saying? It's going to be seven years of... Satisfaction. Satisfaction. That's what he's saying. <coughs> That's very unusual. But because when there's prosperity, there's no satisfaction. 
And he's saying so much satisfaction that Rashi said in source 15, uh, no, not uh, which one was it? 12, no one will envy another person's prosperity. Well, we know that's not true. So now here is the question. Where does Yosef see in the dream that there will be satisfaction in addition to the abundance? That, that's, I mean, clearly there's going to be abundance. They're healthy cows. Clearly, he's saying it's fat animals. That surely means it's going to be, but, but he's, he, go, he just goes straight to the satisfaction. But, so you, you understand what the tension over here is? Yeah. Like, he, he could have just said a lot. And I'm sure till today, almost everybody, you go to anybody says, what did Yosef say? It's going to be seven years of? Plenty. Plenty. Abundance. And no one's, going to, no one's looks in the bus. Satisfaction. Well, I mean, that's nice, but how can you say that? Yeah? But, okay, compared to cows, you have a large field of reeds, and there's a herd of cattle. They're not going to finish it. They're going to eat what is enough to keep them healthy. But when human nature kicks in, and, you know, think of when you have a lot of food on the table. First of all, you should know, a lot of animals fight. You should know. You ever go to the farm? Oh, the alpha male? The horses? Whoa. You, you know, when I was at Mayor's Farm, so the horses are in the corral, they put a big, big, big thing of hay. I mean, huge, a huge thing of hay. And uh, there's a pecking order. Yeah. This little runty horse comes in, and the big horse... <laughs> and kicks him around, he has to go to the back. Yeah. Have to wait. Till the big horse is finished. No, you can come when I've had my fill. Animals are not such, and there's, there's abundance. Cows don't stop eating, by the way. But I'm saying, but they, if you notice, <laughs> okay. you really look carefully, okay. even with the cows, there's these, 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 like these losers in the back over there. And the alpha cow is whatever, bull, whatever is. is I'm a sh- so animals don't usually get along. But maybe the key is no one then envies another. Well, why? That, that's Nobody the. Nobody envies. Okay. Yes, yeah, so, but we, but we, King Solomon just seems to say not that way. If you have a hundred, you want two hundred. If you have two hundred, you want four hundred. If you have four hundred, you want eight hundred. If you have ten million, you want twenty million. So, if you're so you're obviously envious of the guy who has twenty million. So where's Rash? Where's this coming from? This is really what's interesting. And of course, the overall question that I forgot to ask, but it's just like, why is Paro think Yosef's interpretation is so much better than anybody else? So, so where does Yosef see in the dream that there'll be satisfaction in addition to abundance? That's the real question. Where did Yosef come up with this? But now he leads us to another question. How does a person know if he is satisfied? If I would ask you, how do you know a person is satisfied with his wealth? Are you going to say, you know, by not running into debt? Or by leaving things over? Is that the proof? Well, there's (laughs) one for sure proof that a person is satisfied with all the abundance that he has. And what is that? Not to envy another. What? Not to envy another. Not, not to begrudge someone else for what they have. Not to be upset with what you have, yeah. If I begrudge someone else's success, that means that 
I want what he has. And that means I'm not happy where I am. So now Yosef sees in this dream, when he sees that the cows and the wheat are not begrudging each other, that's what the Targum is saying, that they were just coming up there. We don't see any uh, fights. So he sees a miraculous dream that the Egyptians will have abundance and be satisfied because the animals seem to be very satisfied in the dream. Now what blows Paro's mind completely away is this futuristic understanding of a utopian society. Now nobody until this time sees this. What what's goes on in Egypt till now? Well, you know, pretty good economy, whatever's going on, good economy. But everyone's trying to get ahead of everybody else. So it's not like you said we're gonna have seven good years and then seven bad years. He throws in a whole new thing that was <laughs> unbelievable. Seven years of abundance and satisfaction. Whoa, that is incredible. Now, generally speaking, when people make predictions, they only can make predictions from the wealth and charm they come from. So your average tremendous successful business tycoon, is he a satisfied guy? No. He would never dream of a day of people being satisfied. Of people getting along. Because he's not in that world. So how is it that Yosef is able to interpret a dream that way? Unless he's a kind of guy that can be satisfied. You can't interpret what's not in your Weltanschauung. Right? And if you ask people who are Forbes 500 or this and that, nobody thinks about that. And Yosef is thinking this kind of thought. So, so where, where, how do we know this? And really, really, this is the whole fabric of what Jewish culture is supposed to create. And now we come to that word we're looking for. Ayin Tov which we'll talk more about Ayin Tov as it'll come to Shein Tov. They're very much connected. What is an Ayin Tov? An Ayin Tov means I see you have more than me and I'm ecstatic. I see everyone in the room has got more than me and I'm the happiest one in the room. Not me, I'm just giving an example. All right? Nine people have more than me and I'm happy for them. Now, how do we know that Yosef was like that. So let's take a look at source 17. The famous Medrash Rabbi, it talks about all the wonderful things that happened with Yosef. And it says everything that Yosef had, he deserved it. It all came from him. Look what the Medrash goes into great detail. For his mouth that did not sinfully kiss, that's talking when the wife of Potiphar was making overtures to him. Okay, he was rewarded uh, with what? That from his mouth, everybody has to listen to what he says. His mouth was careful, so now his mouth was putting in power. For his body that did not sinfully touch, they put on his body royal clothing. For his neck that did not uh, sinfully bend over, 
So they put a, fa- a big fancy chain around his neck. For his hands that didn't touch an area of Avera, the king took his ring off and put it on his finger. To his legs that didn't run to the Avera, there were those who ran ahead of him. Okay? And for the thoughts that didn't think of sins, he was called the very smart one, the Avrech, the smart one. What do we see from Yosef? <laughs> when he was wildly successful as the, as the servant of Potiphar, and he had the opportunity to have what wasn't his, and he could have had it, and he wouldn't have been even known. And normal human nature is to want what the, you don't have. What doesn't he have? This gorgeous woman, and she's throwing herself at him. It's not even uh, uh, too unethical. And that's the mores of Egypt to behave that way. And, you know, don't you think Paro checked? When, when they bring Yosef out of this jail, you don't think they did an FBI check on the guy? He's just that this Jew boy, he says, oh, there was a Jew boy there, and, you know, gonna let a Jew boy go in there. So he does an FBI check, I'm sure. In fact, well, what was he doing in jail? Well, there was really a... Um, a story that the wife of Potiphar claimed uh, molestation, but uh, so then why didn't they kill him? Well, 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 they kind of found out it was like not true, and he really didn't. And, but you know, we had we had to put him in jail. You know, it was uh, what do you call those things? A uh, conspiracy. They let they leaked the FBI documents out because if he if he if he did what they claimed he did, they would have killed him. And what's he getting a special, a big, a big macher in the jail? So, so Yosef, he is a person with an eye in tov. He's very satisfied. He had a good position. He was satisfied with it. So therefore, since Yosef did not begrudge Potiphar, and Yosef was a satisfied person, he could interpret abundance with satisfaction. That's what Pyro's seeing. And that's how he's able, he's he's telling him, I see in the future there's going to be abundance and satisfaction. And that's something he never heard of. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? So what was his secret? How did Yosef get to that? And that's the same secret if we want to be that way. What do we find in last week's parsha that's repeated over and over and over and over and over? Keeps repeating the name of Hashem was on his lips. The name of Hashem was on his lips. It's always on his lips. And what is that? One second. So when the name of Hashem is on your lips, I mean, you're really talking a lot about Hashem. So perhaps that could bring you to some satisfaction, but we gotta go a step further. Let's go to source 18 and see an interesting Zohar. One of the challenging Zohars over here. When a person is born, he's given many names. One of them is Chaim, life, and the other one is Moves, death. And what rule is that supposed to mean? You have two names, life and death. It doesn't mean when you're born and when you die. What does that mean? And now we come to probably the most important aspect of the class now. Here is the existential question of life. 
And everyone can answer the question for themselves. This is not group therapy. <laughs> but for yourselves, it should be therapy. And you have to be honest with yourself. What really gives you a feeling of life? What gives you a zest for life? And I'll give two paradigms. That's two that I could think of. Maybe you're going to think of one I haven't thought of. But generally speaking, if you ask people what what are they really excited about? What are they rasanda etra? Oh, I'm so thrilled. I'm so. What moves you? What drives you? So we'll give one parody: is being the best, victory, the ability to devour others on your quest to greatness. Being the CEO of a company, climbing up the corporate ladder, bearing the opposition. And this is really what real capitalism is what it's all about. And the more you have, the more you feel alive. Everyone plays to win. It's dog eat dog out there and there's a tremendous thrill when you win. I want to be I want to be the best doctor in Ontario. I want to be the best chiropractor in Thornhill. Best accountant in Thornhill, best real estate agent in Thornhill. Best psychologist in Toronto. Best rabbi in Thornhill. Okay. And, and drives me. I'll do this. I'll be better. I'm, I'm coming up with him. It's like Elon Musk. He's always like a, ten steps ahead of everybody. Right? That drives him. You feel to be able to launch people up into space privately. NASA costs billions and billions. Guys, what do you drink? How billion, billion? I just throw a couple million. And I get somebody to go up there, and I make a profit on it. What a genius! What a genius! He's making what? What? Like a million dollars a shot. For what, a, for a half an hour? Unbelievable. And what drives him? More, more, more. But then we have another one. Now there are, first of all, I should probably, there are people who have like no zest for life. A bunch of low use looks, you know, just, just homeless, whatever. I know, but that people would, that really, it thrills them. And then there's another one, which is a much smaller category, which is, you know what I get excited about? Fulfilling my own potential. And competing with my own potential. Helping others. Now, in school, I don't know, I've been out of school for a while, so I can't comment on the present state of affairs. I'm kind of dated on this. It's been over 25 years since I've been in a classroom. But when I was in school, uh, there was lots of competition. And parents kind of nurtured it, many. And uh, whenever I did PTAs, the parents went, well, how does my kids stack up in terms of the class? You know, and I knew that's what they wanted to hear. So I'd say, okay, he's in the top quartile. Only the top quartile? How about the top two? Top two only? You know? And... And then there'd be competition in class. So it, I always would try to have the kids never compete against anybody else. I always said you have to compete against yourself. So when I taught the, in the lower grades, um, and um, 
they had to read. So I, I, I made everybody we got up to my seat privately, and I gave you 60 seconds to, it was a very like low grades, like grade one, grade two, three, whatever. Read as many words as you can with as little mistakes. This is what Rabbi Weinberg, uh, the, the principal of Eitzchayim years ago, he was very big into that. Just have him read, 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 read. Let him make them read. So when a guy would finish, it's, it's after a minute, okay, 48 words, four mistakes. Then a week later, I call him up. Okay, that was the last one, 48 words, four mistakes. Now go and compete against your score. And if you get 51 seconds and three mistakes, ah, good for you. But no kid ever competed against another kid. So that was rare. But uh, usually there's a lot of competition. So these are the two paradigms of what really gets life into you. Would you, would you agree with that? Do you know of any others? Think about it. Well, these two paradigms have nations behind it. You want to know what those two are? Greeks and Jews. That's why you've got such an amazing clash going on over here. Okay? Now look at source 19, for example. Gmornadorm say, four people are like a dead person. A pauper, a leper, a blind person, and one who has no children. Rabchaim Shulevitz comments, what's the common denominator between all four of these people? Pauper, leper, blind person, and one who has no children. What's the common denominator? They all find it very difficult to... To what? Not to be happy. They're not able to easily help others. That's what I said. Oh. <laughs> what did, That's exactly what I said. Did you say those words? Yeah, exactly. Well, my hearing is not good. I'm maybe, sorry. No, it may be me. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Well, anyway, Never they, mind. they give life to others. They, they, these can't. A leper, you're separated from the community. You don't have children. You don't have such easy access to... For that, you don't have money. It's hard to help people. You're blind. You can't see to help people. And this is what the Zohar meant when we, back at source 18, you have two names. Either Chaim or Maves. Either you can give life to others, you can give death to others. You got these two ways of looking at things. Okay? And if you think about it, the, these are the two, two ways. And a little good source 20 bears this out. Pirkei says, pray for the welfare of the secular government that you live in. Because if it wouldn't be for the fear that the government has, look at the words. Each man would swallow the other one alive. Can you imagine if there was no police? Well, you didn't have to imagine. You saw two years ago what happened. The summer of peace in Portland. Wherever it was. I think it was in Portland. So... How do you solve that problem? This is a human problem. Human beings will devour each other. That's the way it is. If you don't have governments, like, how do we solve it? And think about this. Isn't this the nature of the secular world? What has always existed since time immemorial? War. War. When was there not war? I mean, you had all kinds of wars. England and France, they really had some doozies. The Hundred Years' War. 
My goodness, a hundred years of war. What's the whole idea of war? What's the whole idea? Wanting to defeat and devour others. That's why there is war. Think of all the wars you know of. World War II. Where did that come from? The desire to conquer the world. To have what others have. And that's such a great thrill if you can conquer the world. This has been going on forever. And you got, and you got the bad guys want to conquer the world. The good guys just want to stop them. First of all, it's bad guys and bad guys. It was only bad guys. You have the Greeks, the Romans, the, uh, the, uh, the, who, the, the, the Goths, the, who are the ones, the Norsemen, all these, uh, Hevra. It was just one bad guy with another bad guy. We could destroy him, we take over. Then we destroy you, take Babylonia. They're all were bad guys and bad guys. They never were good guys. Till finally, up this United States was a very unusual thing. First, they were bad guys. They got rid of the Indians, plenty of bad guys. <laughs> but they still had to be good guys to help other people because, you know. But it, this, 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 this all, it's been this way. That's the way the world was. Come along the Greeks, and they come up with this incredible idea. They're very smart people. They said, because the world is a hostile place. So the Greeks came up with a big chiddish. And let's take all of the world's hostility and put it into the Olympics. They said, instead of us just killing each other, you know what? And this was way back, way back. Every four years, we're going to take a break from war. We've got to choose and get our best soldiers to come and fight with the others of different countries. This is where the original Olympics came from. And this is the source of all professional sports. Okay, so each man would swallow each man alive. So what was the secular solution? Was the Olympics. But it really doesn't solve anything. It may reduce the cataclysmic consequences, but it really doesn't change it. It just shifts in a different thing. So let's take, for example, the World Cup or anything else. This is, this is what was so interesting. If you were paying attention, this final championship game was played exactly on the first night of Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly 6 p.m. Qatar time, Qatar time. And in Eretz, I think they're the same time zone as Eretz Yisrael, maybe an hour ahead. But they're lighting candles there, so about 4.35 o'clock, the candles are being still lit. Exactly at this time, this is not just a coincidence. Now, 32 teams went into the World Cup. How many win? One. One. So what does that mean? 99% of teams and people lose in competitions. Now, when I was a youngster, I watched on Sundays the wide world of sports. ABC, yeah, the right. wide world of sports with Chris Schenkel. And they had this great uh, montage of surfers, and some guys surfing these great waves and other people come crashing down. So as they show you the surfer going up, they tell you, and watch the 
ecstasy of victory, and then the agony of defeat. How's that civilized? <laughs> now, when you, you are victorious over another team, what's the word they use? I blanked him. Beat. I beat him. Sometimes I was victorious over him. I beat him. Okay? Um, in football, when you watch a quarterback, that's the guy who throws the ball, scrambling around. So what did everybody say? Kill the quarterback! Kill him! And then when this guy gets tackled, and ten guys pile up on him. Do you know what they're doing at the bottom of the pile? Because nobody could see. The referee's going to say, Woompa, woompa, woompa. <laughs> and then when they pile everybody out, the guy's going, <laughs> The losers are humiliated. This is the source of sports. Competition with others versus competing with your soul, with yourself. This is where the Greeks came up with this whole idea. This was their philosophy. Survival of the fittest. It's, it's only natural. It's the way God, not God, Mother Nature wanted things. The big lion eats the little sheep. The strong man devours the small man. The big man devours the small man. This is nature. This is, and, this, and you get a great thrill if you're that kind of a person. You know, and you and you you could mamish so what was going on, one point five billion people were watching this game last night. That's like twenty percent of all of humanity, and that's including little babies, old people who can't see or hear. I will be one of when France defeated Croatia a few days ago. There were riots in France. Yeah. Yeah. That's when they won. They lost it also. Last night they lost <laughs> riots in France. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have people, they were mamish, living and dying with this. Okay? Now this is all supposed to bring, and the same thing for the Olympics, all supposed to bring brotherhood between all men. <laughs> How in the world are you going to do that when you keep beating other people? You should know the 1936 Olympics in Germany when Jesse Owens, the black American athlete, won, I think it was the 100-yard dash. I don't know what it was. He won a, a, a track and field thing. He goes up to the podium. Hitler would not shake his hand. Can you imagine a black American defeating the German master race? This is, this is what the whole world is. A Jew understands that life means giving to others. We can understand why the Greeks would not like the Jewish philosophy and how the Jews could not take the Greek philosophy. They were too opposite from each other. Okay, so that explains what the whole Hanukkah issue was over here. And that's why Bedavka, Hashem made it, Hashem gets the last laugh, that the totally non-strong um, uh, physical specimens, the Hashemunayim, defeated the most powerful army in the world. 
okay so now let's talk about the word shame now and see how that kind of fits into this as you accurately a few people said a name do you need to have a name do you need to have a name no you don't need to have a name because you know who you are we need to have you have a name so we know to call you what to, to get your attention Think about that. If you were on a desert island, would you need to have a name? <laughs> what do you have to have a name for? Talk to yourself. But you can talk to yourself without a name. Just call yourself self. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. But if, let's say, some in the hallway wants to get uh, Shlomo's attention, he's going to have to say Shlomo. Because if he says you, ten heads turn. So a name, by definition, is for the purpose of other people. You don't need the name at all. So therefore, the definition of a shame tov, a good name, something to do with other people looking at you in a good way. A shame tov is achieved by doing two things. Number one, a person living up to his potential. And he shares his talent with others and inspires others to do the same. Now, you don't get a shame tov. In the secular world, they've got this term called the G-O-A-T in sports. Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. Okay, usually meant we were the GOAT. It means usually guy you lost the game. But anyway... But the greatest of all time, you know, I don't know if he lives up to his potential. He just beat everybody else. And I don't think they share that with others. Certainly wouldn't. You know? I mean, I know of certain people, present company excluded, there's a particular person that has an amazing recipe for a certain type of food. And they will not share the recipe. It's a family recipe. And this person will go to the grave only telling their child this recipe sworn to secrecy not to share it with others. I can't say anymore because then you're going to start guessing. (laughs) I remember the person told to me I was... Anyway, so, you know, you you, want to share that talent with others. Right? Because people are looking at you in a good way. Now, they're not going to look at you in a good way if if you beat them in a soccer match. They're going to look at you in a good way if you did something for them that makes them capable of doing it for themselves as well because you're not jealous of them. Because you are not with abundance, but you are satisfied. You share your talents with others and a shame tov depends on how much life you give to others. A shame told means how much you inspire others. And a Jew is responsible to develop himself as much as he can and inspire and impact others to emulate his goodness. Never to compete. Now, this explains the idea, are there three crowns or four crowns? The answer is, there are three crowns. There are three crowns. The crown of kingship, the crown of priesthood, the crown of, of, of Torah. Now, each one 
is a crown in and of how the person develops himself. In other words, am I a big Torah scholar or not? For me, and I can get a crown, I know a lot of Torah. A king, you don't have to naturally be of royal blood. A king is anyone who can control, and if you control all your uh, moods and mood swings and passions, you're also a king. Because you have thousands of subjects who are, are, are trying to just do whatever they want to do and you got to control them. you got the subject of jealousy, you got to control that. you got the subject of laziness, you got to control that. you got to control yourself. And priestlyhood really is like saintliness. Holiness. So the first three crowns there, and what's the idea of a crown? What does a crown do to your head? It circumscribes it. Atkan, but stays within you. Keep it under your hand. There are three. The fourth one of a good name isn't what you have. It's how you impact others with, with your other three crowns. You hear? Each and every one of us has three personal crowns that we're only competing against ourselves. Everyone has a certain portion of Torah and it's up to you how much Torah you're going to have. It doesn't matter how much this person has. Your Torah is going to be your Torah. Finished. You want to be a ruler over yourself? You be a ruler over yourself as long as you being a ruler over yourself. And you want to be saintly and holy and, and, and do lots of things in Kedusha. Go ahead. Compete against yourself. Ah, but how about if I now look at others and say, you know what? I've had some success in this area. Maybe I'm going to try to help that other person to be more of whatever else he can be. Now think about this. This is amazing. This is a crown that's not a crown. So now let's think. Let's think. We got three items in the base of Migdosh. We've got the table that's got a little ornamental crown around it. You've got the ark that's got an ornamental crown about it. You've got the small altar that's got an ornamental crown. But the menorah has no crown because it's not circumscribed. It shoots out. It shoots out. That's the menorah because that's what light is. Now you're going to notice some very interesting differences over here. In the Olympics, what's the most hush of thing you could do in the Olympics? Carry the Olympic torch. Fusep is a torch. Fusep is a torch. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at source 21. Torah tells us about the different types of damages. When a fire is started and spreads to thorns so that stacked, standing, or growing grain is consumed, then you have to pay. What does a fire do by definition? A fire consumes. And the Olympic torch, if the guy is, is, is really good, you get a torch. Why? Because you've been able to devour others. A fire consumes. That is what the Olympics is all about. Who can you torch? They even use these terms. He burned him. Right? They went for the burn. He burned the linebacker. He left him way back. They use all these terms. He... he Violent, very violent thing, these Olympics. But the Torah says, Kiner mitzvah, a mitzvah is a candle, the Torah, or 
Torah is light. We never talk about fire. Because light gives off light, but has no physical matter of itself. Light does not consume, but it illuminates. Light is an expression of a good name which illuminates other people, but fire destroys other people. The menorah was there for, it was made in a way that it couldn't do anything but illuminate. It wasn't meant to torch anything. It was in the little vessels. It's giving light. And that's the menorah is the good name. The good name, why is it a good name? It's because what you do for yourself and how you can now translate that to make have others feed off of that. And you're not jealous of them. And that's why the good name is better than all, even though it's not a crown. It's a crown, but not a crown. There's three personal crowns. But then there's the one crown that you bring everybody else there. Now, interesting... What do we put into the menorah? Oil. Oil. Which is called? Shemen. Shemen. What's smaller word? Shame. Is it shame? Is shemen? Shmona? So now we got oil in there because that's the good name of the menorah. The oil illuminates so others are able to benefit from it. You see, when you have a shame tov, you illuminate everybody's life. Now, what's the real kind of eulogy people want to have for themselves? Is that that a shame? Mm -hmm. To just say, oh, he was the smartest man, he was the most brilliant doctor, and all this. So what? Doesn't mean he had a good name. He was the most wealthiest guy, this and that. But if he, but if he wasn't, jealous of others and he wanted to use that what for Chaim to give others life and he was he was satisfied with what he had and he used it to help other people that's what you really want about another person okay so now you can understand what's going on over here that that Yosef was telling Paro there's not only going to be wealth there's going to be not just prosperity but there's going to be what people getting along with each other that everyone's going to use their wealth in a way that it's going to help others and not fight with others. And Par says, how could this happen? But we see that Yosef was this person. So now you see, the, this is how Yosef can create abundance and satisfaction and change Egyptian savages into being satisfied. And therefore... Hanukkah is the holiday of shining your shame tov to the rest of the world. And that's why the real mitzvah in, in nice climates, in safe, nice climates, is to light the menorah. Not in your house, but outside. So others benefit from your life, light. And, there's, and you're not jealous that other people have your light. It always bothered me to go to the gas station for years. You got to get air for free. Yeah. Now you got to pay a buck for air. <laughs> they won't give you air for free. Okay. But anyway, so that, that's the, the key of Hanukkah, is to develop that shame tov that you have. Now, let's just finish up. One more step over here. One or two more steps. Kiddush Hashem. Now it makes a lot of sense. God has a name. Now, what is that name? 
Well, it's his perceived reality. So, if a shame tov is goes over all the crowns, wouldn't we as Jews want Hashem to have a shame tov? Why? So that the rest of the world will know that Hashem gives life for others. And that's really what Kiddush Hashem is, what a Jew must do. The Rambam says it clearly. What is Kiddush Hashem? When you behave in a way that people say, oh, look at this fellow. What a fine fellow. Look, he's a fine fellow. He has good mitos. He learns Torah. Wow, look what Torah does to a person. They whacked so nicely. That God must be that that same thing. And what's a chil Hashem? When a Jew acts in a not nice way, they say, I guess that God taught him how to do that too. So this is our obligation, like, is to spread Hashem's light to others. So if a Jew has a Shem Tov, he creates a Kiddush Hashem, and we illuminate others instead of consuming others. And the non-Jew has to come to realize how good Hashem is for them. <coughs> because they're going to see it through the good name of the Jews. When an Orthodox Jew acts in an exemplary fashion and the, and, the, and the wealthy Jew is not looking to bury the competition, but it's learning just to what? To enable everybody to make some, a living over here. There's lots of great stories I don't have time to tell you of good from Jews who, who would, would be willing to lose money and let make sure someone else makes a little bit of money. Well, then that reflects good on God. That's the whole point. That, God doesn't need it. He needs the rest of the world to appreciate what Hashem does. So now the Greeks were against three mitzvahs. Why these three mitzvahs? Because these are the three mitzvahs that God's name is on us. Number one, mila, circumcision. It's as if God's name is etched into the person. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't mistake it who's a Jew when you're in the locker room. I mean, that's, it, that's a Jew, man. There's nothing you can talk about it. Shabbos is one of the names of Hashem. One of the names of Hashem. It's when you, can, when you can really perceive that Hashem is the one who gave everything. It's the greatest gift. Rosh Chodesh, we know that every month has a configuration of the Shem Hashem, Yud, K Vav, K. All these are great emblems of Hashem's shame. And therefore, the Greeks, they don't want to know anything about God's good name. We don't want nature to be God that tells us that we should share what we have and not to compete. No, we want Zeus. They had the gods. We're fighting with each other, killing each other. Just like us. That's a God. The best God. The one who destroys the competition. The gods are at war. We're in war. We're just like God. God's just like us. Jews say, no, 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 our God is kind, our God is good, our God wants to give man purpose, reason. God's not jealous of us, he wants to lift us up. And you see that in Jews doing that to other Jews, that's the image of God. The Greeks couldn't stand that. Which now leads us to the last point. So now you understand why we're lighting the menorah. Because the menorah is shame tov. Critical. So what's left? Hallel. To say thank you. Now, what does it really mean to say thank you? You open the door for me. Thank you. Thank you is to acknowledge 
the other person's shame tov and how it positively affected my life. And I say thank you. That's holdo. All right? That's what halal is all about. Look at the last source. Look what, look what we say. It's a, you, tomorrow you're going to say halal. You're going to pay attention. First paragraph of the halal. Hallelujah, hallelujah, avdei Hashem. Let the servants of praise. Hallelujah, shame Hashem. Let's pray. Yehi shame Hashem, mevarach me'atavi adolam. Mimizrach shem ish'ad mevom hulol, shame Hashem. We keep praising the name of Hashem. Why the name? Because it's how we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That, that's how we relate to it. That's what the Chashmonaim did. The Chashmonaim won the war. They could have taken all the credit. So what did they say? We're not going to just say, make statues of the Chashmonaim, create poetry in honor of the great, brave Hasmoneans. It's what? We, we thank Hashem. Because Hashem's the one who gave us that ability to do that. Because the Hashmonaim, they had a shame tov. They wanted to do it for others. They're willing to die for others. And they wanted to have Hashem have the shame tov. And instead of taking credit for the battle, they give Hashem the credit. That's why Yavon is darkness, because they use the fire to destroy others. And you got to be careful where you see fires. Where are the most fires in the United States? In California. In California. California because they're the ones who don't believe in God and the fighters they, they destroy others so they can destroy themselves and I understand the connection of these two mitzvahs of Hanukkah because if we have the menorah has the shame tov it means we're satisfied Hanukkah is when we feel satisfied and we want others to make sad, to be satisfied and that's why the only mitzvah where you see someone else doing the mitzvah and you can't do it, you make the bracha because we're celebrating the joy of someone else's success. He can light him nor and I can't. I'm not jealous of him. I make a bracha. Thank God there's another Jew at least who can do it. And I'm thrilled to make a bracha on that, even though I can't. Because that's where all jealousies goes away. So that's what Hanukkah is meant to give us this feeling of a unified society where everybody works on their potential. We try, strive to impact on others to likewise succeed. And that's Hanukkah where everybody is satisfied and those who are trying to beat everyone else is not satisfied. So don't you see the incredible Yad Hashem when you're seeing 1.5 billion people, some were satisfied of destroying the enemy. The other's agony of defeat. That's what the best of the world has ought to offer. And at the same time, you got Jews lighting a menorah. If you can't see the, 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 the schism, the tension in the whole world, it all came last night when we lit our menorah to say, I want to be the best I can be and share that goodness with others. And that's what, that brings light to others. Well, they torch everybody and all the terrible things that follow these events. 
Baruch Hashem Shalom Asani Goy. We have plenty to sing to Hashem for the next seven days. Okay, thank you all for listening.